What is author marketing mastery through optimization, you ask? I'm gonna tell you. It's the best way for us authors to make a living selling our books. Are you tired of hearing gurus tell you your book is only good enough to be a lead magnet for services? Are you tired of feeling like you have to be a slave to social media and then frustrated when the time you spend doesn't actually help you sell books? I was too, until I found Ammo. Ammo is the only program that reliably produces results and it works for anyone. Is it hard work? You bet. Do you have to overcome some of your own prejudices to make Ammo work for you? Absolutely. But rather than being another program that rah-rah shish-goom-bahs tries to get you emotionally excited only to offer unclear methods, Ammo shows you how to design profitable ads step-by-step through a unique, highly tested and targeted formula. The founder, Steve Piper, is a data-loving, formula-driven author who escaped the kingdom of Amazon to build a platform for himself, where he sold directly to his readers and built a loyal following and millions of copies sold. With Ammo, you know who's reading your books, how to contact them, and what they want to read next. If you've always been frustrated with Amazon's wall of mystery of not knowing who's reading your books and losing 50 to 70% of your hard-earned money that you're making through sales, Ammo solves all of those problems by putting you in the driver's seat and showing you how to fulfill your books directly to your readership. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing Ben Wolf for this episode today. And if you don't know who he is, make sure to listen closely, because if you're the sort of author who has tried unsuccessfully to advertise on Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, or anywhere else, then Ben may have the solution for you that is in your control and something that you can do right now to change the way that your book sales are going. I'm not going to hold back. It is through conventions. Ben advertised a ton through many platforms and found no success. But as soon as he started going to different comic expos and conventions, he started seeing some amazing success. And now he is making a living wage selling novels. If that sounds like something that you're interested in, you're going to love this episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Ben Wolf. This is TRBM Ammo Edition. If you're a published author and want to make a living writing books and selling them to avid readers, you've come to the right place. There's simply no program that's more successful at driving readers towards the books you've written. So the only thing you have to worry about is writing a great book. And the system with enamel takes care of the rest. Thanks for listening to this conversation. What's the smallest size of a book selling event you'll go to? And will you, yeah, let's do that first. The smallest event these days that I'm willing to go to would be sort of the equivalent of a one-day pop-up comic convention. Usually these take place at a mall. Usually they are still pretty lucrative because mall shoppers whether they're coming for the event or not there's a huge cross-section of them that are also readers and especially if it's a mall that already has a bookstore like a barnes and noble or a books a million or whatever 
there's a decent chance that when they walk out and see my display and see that I have books, they will at least take a long look, if not also stop by, if not also purchase something. Nice. With that said, I do occasionally do smaller local craft and vendor shows, mm -hmm. though I haven't done as many of those this year because I've had other events that have kind of filled in those spaces. Essentially, if I know there are going to be people there, preferably a lot of people, and they're looking to spend money, then generally speaking, it's worth it for me to show up. Yeah. Uh, I went to one this past weekend. I've talked a little bit about it on the podcast or not past weekend recently um, at the Iowa fairgrounds. And there was, I think about 30, maybe as many as 40 authors. There it was a book fair. And I, I, I do believe we had 20 customers roll in the entire day. Uh, it was, it was one of those moments where I was like, I really need to figure out a way to vet these because, you know, sure. I thought with the number of people that were there, it's an eighth year, um, you know, every, all signs pointed toward it being good. And I think the only person who made money on the event was the person booking the the space. <laughs> sure. So sure. Uh, are there ways that you, you vet those pop-up cons or anything bigger? I try to do essentially what you did, which was look at the hubbub around the event, especially if it's got a Facebook page. Facebook will tell you some information. It won't tell you everything because the the numbers of people that attend versus the number of people who clicks to say, I'm attending this, they're always way off. Usually, right, exactly. in my experience, the the click, the number of people who have clicked and who've said that they're going to attend is smaller than the number of people that actually show up. Mm -hmm. But even so that it's still, it's still not a data point that I would hang my hat on. Yeah. What I do tend to look for is the other element that you mentioned, which is how many years they've been doing this, because if it's been going on for eight years and if it still seems like it's growing, going strong, that's an indication to me that it might be worth checking out. And then, of course, the other factor, the other two main factors in this are what's it going to cost for me to go and do the show? If yeah. it's 35 bucks or 45 bucks, you know, it's kind of worth trying, especially if I don't even have anything else going on that weekend already. Mm -hmm. If it's going to be more expensive than that or or just proportionally more expensive than some of the other options I would have, I'd probably stick with something that I know already. Mm. And then the other element is how far do I have to drive to get there? Yeah, if it's close then I'll, I did a haunted house show, uh, Halloween night and it was a local haunted house and I did not sell very many books, but yeah. it cost me almost nothing to do it. And I had a good time. And mm -hmm. as a bonus, my daughter got to go through the haunted house for free. So hey, on, the, on those grounds, it was worth it. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Um, yeah, I've got a, a craft fair coming up on the 30th of November that I signed up for, and I really know very little about it, but it's 5 to 9 p.m. during the weekday, and that's kind of how they're pitching it as they're like, it's it's a weird it's a weird time to have a craft fair, and we've had success in the past. So um, sure. I'm going to see how it goes. Four hours. I figured the same thing as you. I paid 45 bucks for it, and if I sell the number of books that at least I break even on the gas and the the printing costs, I feel like, okay, I maybe now have a few new readers at, at the very worst. Yeah. So um, I guess let's step back for a second. I do want to try to be linear in the way that I handle this conversation. I'm terrible at it. Uh, but what got you into this particular way of selling books? Was it something where it was just like, oh, this is the obvious uh, answer to finding new readers? Or was there any level of desperation? Like I've tried everything, nothing else has worked. I'll, I'll give this a wing. What was it? Absolutely. A level of desperation was involved. 
yeah. we uh i i personally have been struggling to try to find purchase with online sales since 2018 mm -hmm. technically since 2014 but more more dedicated in my approach uh, as of 2018 when i really threw myself headfirst into indie publishing and i had seen success story after success story of authors writing to market or sometimes not writing to market and just killing it yeah. making great inroads with readers catching a fad or catching a trend and and riding the wave and i regardless of whatever i've tried have been unable to do that i just spoke at the aforementioned 20 books vegas conference about live events and i have forgot that i had included this particular slide in my presentation but it was a slide showing my lifetime earnings on amazon and my lifetime earnings on Amazon are less than $10,000. Wow. Which is really bad. And that's still like, that's current, actually. That's current. Awesome. Yes. That was, I, I say that awesome was because of, I know how well you do in live, live events. Not awesome that yes. you only have. <laughs> For contrast, I made, I made barely over $10,000 from live sales in the month of August alone. Yeah. So... I can literally do, I have, I can now say I've literally done in one month in live events, what I've sold online all time for Amazon, which is pitiful on the Amazon side, but, but it's awesome on the live event side. So yeah. for me, that desperation was a real, a real factor. Mm -hmm. I have been sort of an ugly collection of side hustles for years. I would do freelance editing. I would do publishing, consulting, and coaching. I would do a little bit of print brokering, a little bit of formatting and uploading and just whatever. If it was publishing related and I could help, then I could probably find a way to make some money off of it as well. Mm -hmm. And that was great. But there comes a point where you you lose, if you're like me, you, you lose interest in some of those things because there are so many stories calling at you. And yeah. I have this great sense of my time on this planet is limited just like all of ours and so the longer that i pour my focus and energy into all of this other stuff the fewer stories i'm going to be able to get out and leave behind by the time i'm gone mm -hmm. so i did my first live event my first real legit live event in 2018 i had two books out sold maybe 300 ish dollars worth of merchandise which is not bad for two yeah. days at a uh, a large large ish local comic convention that mm -hmm. was at a downtown convention center i got the table for free because i oh, made cool. friends with the organizers so they're just like yeah you're you're cool so you can just have a table it'd be great to have an author there nice so it was good and i i i made some money and i but even so i was still pretty risk averse so mm -hmm. i didn't do another one for almost a year Really? And okay. that was a mistake on my part. Yeah. I only did two live events in 2018, that one being one of them. Okay. And I made about 500 bucks that year, a little bit less. This, um, the, in 2019, I decided, well, there's another one that's happening in Des Moines. And my friend, who's one of the organizers for that aforementioned event, is going. He's going to set up a table. And so I can just kind of set up next to him for free. Mm -hmm. uh, again for free because it was the first time I had done this particular show and they had a promo so yeah. I got in on that and did it and I made it like another 300 bucks this time with yeah. two or three books uh, available um, mm -hmm. and so that 
in that moment, that was the show where it kind of clicked. It's like, well, if I could just keep doing these, if I could pull in an extra 300 bucks twice a month, mm -hmm. that would go a long way toward financial stability for my family and me. And very quickly, I collected a bunch more shows. I think I did 12 or 13 or something that year yeah, in 2019 and made a few thousand bucks. And it was important. It helped supplement the income. Yeah. At fast forward, uh, now I'm doing 40 shows a year and I'm pulling down. My projection is I'll pull down roughly 60 grand before the end of the year just from doing these live events. Now that's that's just revenue that doesn't sure. account for my expenses, for my my printing expenses, mm -hmm. travel, hotel, the actual cost of buying these spaces at these shows. Yeah. But suffice to say, like I'm still making some money by pulling in 60 grand a year just from yeah. going to these shows and selling my own stuff. So that yeah. for me is it's incredible. And if it weren't for that desperation early on, I don't think I would have found this. I'd still probably be banging my head against a wall. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Online sales. Yeah. You are uh, friends with, or I think know Jonathan Yanez, Jennifer, yeah. um, some of the same people that, that we uh, run in circles for different reasons. Um, I'm kind of curious knowing Jonathan, knowing some of those people, uh, have you had any experience with Steve Piper's ammo program? I have not. I've heard of it, and it sounds pretty cool. But at this yeah. point, <laughs> I love the way you just said "pretty cool." Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's it sounds really cool, and yeah. and I'm glad that it's working for them. But they've had success online prior, and yeah. so I've I mean I've had Brian Cohen, who is a genius and a wonderful person, try to help me with my Amazon ads personally. Yeah, and I still can't get traction. So yeah. if Brian Cohen and and Brian Meeks, who was also in Amazon ads a few years ago, they yeah. both tried to help me. And I, I think I'm just a lost cause, honestly, in yeah. terms of Amazon sales. I think the algorithm is actively against me at this point <laughs> because I had published so many other things throughout the years Yeah, with, with a set of magazines that I used to own, flash fiction magazines that also okay. didn't sell. I think yeah. I tanked the algorithm for the name Ben Wolf. Interesting. So okay. I'm... Uh, <laughs> My hope is to focus more on direct sales yeah. as far as my online sales go, because I can create the ebook. I can build an audience. I've been yep. doing that over the last couple of years, and I'm hoping that I can monetize that way since Amazon yeah. clearly doesn't want my money. Yeah. So in this case, Steve's program, the, the ammo program, and I won't tell people what they already know listening to this podcast, because this is um, a, an arm of the ammo program, but it actually is direct sales. So he teaches you how Perfect. to uh, set up yeah, your your uh, pixel and everything that goes into Facebook and then selling direct. So like I have my Shopify store and I don't I don't do anything with Amazon. I put my books there so that people can find them. I'm in a very similar boat to you. I was so proud of myself last month because I sold 32 copies and 31 days of my books. And I was like, oh, I'm a success. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, you could just never be uh, a full-time author with that kind of a situation. And I would agree with you that I know people who are tremendously successful, Jonathan being one of them, where they have tens of thousands of reviews and just mm -hmm. really crushing it. I've never figured that out. One thing I want to ask, and like I said, I'll try to be linear, but this is not a linear question, is sure. in terms of giving yourself uh, some version of, um, I want to, I guess I'll use the word credibility. I don't think it's exactly the right word. Uh, and then 
capturing customers to buy the next book. Those are two things that I think are difficult in in-person events. Do you feel like you have tips, tricks, secrets for how you you have that credibility? Because if someone right now, for example, looks at your profile on Amazon, they're going to be like, well, where's all this guy's sales? Uh, where are all the reviews? That kind of stuff. What What's your outlook? That's a pretty broad question, I know. So we can tackle yep. it in multi-parts. So first thing I would say is that if you've got someone in front of you at a live event, it's very, very rare that they're going to try to look you up on the spot. Yeah. At least in terms of Amazon. I've had it happen where more likely what's going to happen is if that if you give them a good pitch, if you catch them, um, if they're going to do any research at all, they're going to say, okay, I'm going to look into you and then I'll come back tomorrow, especially if it's a multi-day event. I have had that happen. Usually yeah. they come back and they buy something, which is great because even though I don't have a lot of reviews, most of my reviews are pretty good. Yeah. In terms of establishing that credibility early on, you kind of just have to be relentless about saying how awesome you are, which is counterintuitive to, I mean, very much counterintuitive to how I was raised. You're not yeah. supposed to toot your own horn. Not that right. my parents had anything wrong. Had anything against me being confident? They just didn't want me to be prideful, and right. there is a difference between the two. In in online sale or, or excuse me, in in person sales, you kind of have to toot your own horn, yeah. and you there's no one else who's going to do it for you. And that's really what it comes down to. So on my banner, I have the words "Meet the Legend, Ben Wolf." Like, am nice. I a legend? No, <laughs> absolutely not. No, by no stretch of the imagination am I. This is, to use a a religious term, this is sort of a name it, claim it type situation. I'm trying to manifest the idea of me being a legend at some point, maybe eventually down the road. Yeah. But when someone is just walking past, they're not thinking, did this guy design his own banner and call himself a legend? Did he really do that? No, they're thinking, oh, Oh, that's cool. And then they see the quality of what I have on the table and they're like, oh my gosh, this guy must actually be a legend. And then <laughs> if they like to read, they look at the books and yeah. they realize, oh my gosh, these book covers are phenomenal because I have Chef's Kiss excellent book covers because I pay good money for them. Yeah, And they they do a lot of the work for me mm-hmm. in bringing people over. That's, that's my main strategy is create an atmosphere around my booth that inspires people to come over without letting them even have a chance to have a second thought. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a whole sense of like been there, done that, that you, you create with all of those different items that you put into your booth uh, and, and they're able to walk up and feel like, Oh, this guy knows what he's doing. And it's really strange how we borrow other people's confidence too. When you talk about name it, claim it, you borrow, borrow from other people. I was uh, watching my son and his first YMCA basketball game last week. And um, his cousin is very short, uh, even for his age, has never played basketball before, doesn't really know the rules, but man, he was all over the court acting like he knew what the hell he was up to. And he kept getting passes and you're like, okay, really all you have to do is just own the fact that you are a legend and somehow you are a legend in that moment. Now, when they buy your book and they take it home and they read it, then what's the next step? Because now you're the legend and they get to uh, read the book and be like, I'm reading the legendary Ben Wolf. And then what's that experience? Like, how do you, how do you hold on to them and, and move them deeper into a relationship with you after they're gone? 
The reality that I've come to realize with regard to maintaining and cultivating a readership is that you really only do have limited control over yeah. what someone will do after they have bought your book and walked away. And so for yep. me, I really try to maximize that initial encounter and that initial experience with them, because if they have a great time on that first experience, then I know that when they read my book, if I've done my job properly and sold them what they, the type of book that they want to read, I know that my writing is good enough to captivate them and get them to want to keep reading, especially if it's a series. Yeah. And I've got all the back matter and stuff like, hey, contact me. Hey, get on my newsletter and all that fun stuff. But yep. for me, it's that initial experience. If I can provide, I say in my book on live events, I, I want to bond over books with this person who is in front of me. It just so happens that the books that we're bonding over are ones that I've written. And if we're bonding over those books before they've even read a single page, then that bond will continue throughout the entirety of the book. They'll be like, oh my gosh, he was right. It's got this in it. It's so cool. Wow, he really is good. Maybe maybe they're even thinking, wow, he could be a legend someday or he is a legend. Yeah. Whether or not they think that it's sort of immaterial. The point is, if if I can if I can give them a great experience on the front end, then my theory, and I've seen it play out, is that they are going to be more willing to try to find the next book in the series or come mm -hmm. back and find me later on or stay in touch. So it's it's sort of this almost a, a, a metaphysical abstract thing where I'm, I'm counting on the good work that I've done on the front end for interacting with them and then writing the book hmm. to play out throughout the course of their relationship with the book to an extent that they're going to want to come back and get more books later on. So I, yeah. I'm, it's a lot of faith, right? There's a lot of faith that I'm putting in myself and my process as well yep. as in the writing that I've done. But there is one practical tip that I would offer to authors to help solidify it. And it's a little less faith-based. And that is as soon as you make a sale, as you're signing the book, if you've got it handy, hand them an iPad with yeah. a link to where they can sign up for your newsletter right then and there, because yeah. they're, they're a qualified lead at that point. They're not even really a lead because they've already purchased from you. They're technically right. they're a client. And those are the people that you want on your newsletter because yes. they're people who have already spent money with you. That's right. They're people who are already invested in you and in your success and invested in the stories that you want to tell. And so that's the practical piece. Yeah. That's how I follow up with them. I, I can send in, I, I typically send a newsletter out every week and nice. that is sufficient enough for most people to hear what I have going on. And they mm -hmm. usually are pretty receptive when I offer at the end of the transaction, Hey, can we stay in touch? Would you like to jump on my author newsletter? It, I don't have exact data on this, but it is roughly 95%, probably maybe even closer to, to 98% of the people I ask who have made a purchase, they jump on the newsletter. Yeah. It's absolutely. only uh, one per every five or six shows will say no. Yeah. That's how it goes. That's great. Uh, let's take a small pit stop on the newsletter. What's the yep. kind of content that you put in there? How how long or brief do you try to keep it? Uh, and are you always selling in that newsletter or is it sometimes just a value added? I appreciate you asking this question in particular because this was a struggle for me yeah. as of um, when I really 
dove into indie publishing, people, you get, you know how it is. You get advice from every angle. Oh, you need to have a newsletter. Yeah. Oh, you need to do this. You need to do that. Facebook ads, Amazon ads. Oh, you are you yeah. on BookBub? Do you use BookFunnel? All these different things. That's great. You And so you as the indie author, you have to sift through all of that and figure out what resonates with you. Mm-hmm. For me, the newsletter w- has always been something that's like, oh, I have to do a newsletter. And it's one of those things mm-hmm. where if I had been able to come up with good content, I think I would have been doing the newsletter more consistently. Yeah. These shows have given me my content. Oh, nice. That's awesome. And that is, it's so convenient. It's fantastic because... What I will do is my structure is essentially the same for every newsletter. I will start out by saying, hey, I just got back from Vegas because I did just get back from Vegas. Right. It was a great show, sold a lot of books, got to hang out with some friends, hosted a fantasy themed party on Tuesday night, made some good connections. Just give the rundown, share some pictures because people do like to live vicariously through other people. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, the next thing I do is say, hey, the next time I'll be in Vegas is next year or whatever. But then the next section is, here's the show that I'm coming to next week. Nice. So if you want to come see me, it would be this weekend, technically. This coming weekend, I'll be in Madison, Wisconsin. So if you're in Madison, and I know that I've got some fans in Madison, so I'm specifically highlighting this for those fans, come see me. It's going to be here. It's going to be these times. It's free or it's not free or whatever. I just try and give... Right just a smattering of the relevant detail um, so that they can, they can handle it. Sorry. I got a text message. from My wife about something had to respond very quickly. So no I've got the, I've got my, I've got those sections in the newsletter. And then the next thing I'll do is I'll take it one week further and say next weekend, I'll be here at this particular location, right? I'll be in my hometown for a show or whatever it may be. I'll share that information. And then the last section typically is, here's what I'm working on. And it's like a teaser section, something Mm -hmm. to keep them wanting more. That was some good advice that I got a while back. If you can keep them wanting more, they're more likely to stay engaged and, and, and wonder about what cool things you're creating in the future. So I do try to have some of that, but occasionally instead of the teaser, I will put, okay, I have this launch or I have this on sale or whatever. So I'll, I'll put that in there instead. Going into December, I'm going to be running some holiday themed specials. So mm-hmm. where if people want to buy certain, um, certain books, specifically my Santa Saves Christmas series, because it's for the holidays, then they will be able to um, they'll be able to maximize their purchase by being entered for a drawing for some bonus memorabilia that I have uh, riddled with bullets at a friend's uh, farm, for example. So <laughs> that that's just a unique collectible thing that I'll be offering. Essentially, what happened is I had some books that were damaged in a shipment, and so I took mm. them to my friend's farm. And I just shot them full of holes because I can't rightfully sell them. And so now I'll use them as promotional giveaways for anyone who buys one of my Santa series. They'll get an extra book or an extra bookmark or something because I had a misprint on a bookmark or um, a book was printed and some of the pages popped out because the glue wasn't in there the right way or whatever. Mm -hmm. Shoot them full of holes, right? And then share them with folks who are already spending money 
just as a way to say thank you. And then you get, you get a freebie, right? Yeah. So that's, that was kind of a rabbit trail on a rabbit trail, but um, suffice it to say the newsletter, now that I have content, it's something I really try to lean into and I try mm. to do it every week. There have been weeks where I've missed. I don't kick myself in the, in the head for it. I just yeah. get back on the horse next week. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's interesting for me because I've noticed with my newsletter that if I try to uh, value the time I spend putting it together based on the number of sales I get on any given week, then I'm really inclined to quit because for me so far, the newsletter does not generate a ton of sales every week. But what I have started to realize is that the newsletter does a great job of keeping readers warm while I work on the next book. Um, and then when I'm, when I'm able to say I've got a new release, then you see that week that, that the bump happens right then, because now people have something new to get more, more than I can even say of, of my particular list. And this may not be true of everybody, though I suspect it's fairly close, um, has everything I have to offer at the moment. Like they're up to date with me. So they're just waiting for me to get something else out there. Um, and then kind of ending this little part of it is, do you ever work faster than you'd like to trying to capitalize on that, whether it's having a new book at a show or having a new book to offer in your newsletter? Are you saying, are you asking if I work faster because I know I'm kind of on the hook with my newsletter subscribers? Is that another mm -hmm. way you phrase it? No. Um, I'm trying to understand your question. Yeah, absolutely. So give you the answer. Yeah. It, it, for me, it's more of a question of, uh, it's, it's uh, the idea, I always forget his name and I feel terrible about it because he's like the father of self-publishing in some ways, but um, he talks about publishing bees. He's he's kind of okay. He said he got to this point where he's like, I'm going to edit it. It's not going to have any typos. I could make it better. I could go through and do another round and another round and make it great. And he's like, but I've accepted that my readers aren't mad at me for publishing a bee. And that's part of the speed thing. It's like, do you, do you hold out longer or do you publish quickly because of external pressures? Got it. Okay. So for me, I want everything I publish to be an A. And yeah. so I'm okay with waiting, but I've, I've also been in this industry long enough that I can write quickly and have it be a quality Yeah. for um, the last multiple books that I've done. I feel like I have hit that mark. Yeah. And one of the, one of the conundrums of self-publishing or of, I, I suppose you could say writing and publishing in general is that with every book you write, you become a better author in theory, or at mm -hmm. least you, if you're striving for that, then you're more likely to hit that. But also, so it, you would think, oh, well, it's going to get easier. But the irony is that it actually doesn't get easier because yeah. now you're holding yourself to a higher standard. And so it's harder to reach that higher standard. But at the same time, you are getting better results. So it's this weird and interesting relationship between the creative process and the amount of time that you spend on the creative process and then the things that you're striving for in terms of getting better as an author. For me, I, I just want to produce something fantastic. Yeah. Some, and, and the word fantastic is an intentional choice. It has to be fantastic. It has to be great. If it's not great, I don't want to publish it. I have a few manuscripts from earlier in my career that are not fantastic. And so they're just yeah. not going to get published and they may never get published unless I can figure out a way to make them fantastic. Yeah. So for me, I just want to, I got to create something that will be amazing and will resonate with people in the long term. And if it takes me a little bit longer, that's fine. 
for me, what it ends up being is that the first book usually takes the longest because I'm creating the world, creating the characters, I'm establishing the rules, all that fun stuff. But then once I've got the majority of that work out of the way, I can write the rest of the series a lot faster. Mm. That's generally how it has gone for me across all the different series that I've worked on. Once I have the groundwork laid and a foundation that I can build on, it's much easier to go faster, but it does take yeah. me some time to kind of ramp up to that first book. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, it's it's a personal question too for me because I am, I'm rushing. I've had a deal that I'm doing through the ammo program where I'm selling the first four books of my series. Uh, and I just published the third one. So that's no longer a pre-order. But the fourth one is I had it outlined. I knew where I wanted to go with it, uh, or I had a majority of it outlined and had a good idea. And I was probably 20,000 words into the outline when I, when I just started having this daily dread going back to that, that manuscript and thinking like something's wrong, something's wrong. And I hate that feeling because sometimes you're wrong and it's a mood you're in and you need to push through. And, and in this case, it was, this one's got to go, got to start over, like completely fresh, get the good vibes, get the good feel, you know, where you made the mistake and fix it from the beginning. Um, so I think that that's kind of the personal element for me is that I never want to throw away work, but sometimes you you have to, and there's not too many industries. If you really think about it, wherever you came from, if you're still working a W2 or not, um, there's not too many industries where they're like, well, you just got to throw away everything you did this year. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's a hilarious thing to think about because in our industry, that is very much a thing that you can do and you can have happen. Yeah. Uh, I would say that's less the case for authors who are more full-time. Mm -hmm. The, the authors who are still at that hobbyist level or they're part-time or they're building up to full-time, whatever that looks like for them, they have a little bit more freedom. If something isn't working, they can just scrap it. If it's, yeah. if my next paycheck is dependent on my next book, then I'm going to finish the book as That's a true. professional yeah. author. We, we have to do that. So yeah. it, it depends on where you're at in your career and no judgment from me anyway, regardless of where you're at in your career. My stance is the same, no matter what, finish whatever it is you're working on. Mm -hmm. And if it's good enough, then publish it. If it's not good enough, then at least finish it because that experience will serve you well for whatever you're going to do next. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so getting back into the the live events, I wanted to talk a little bit of uh, actual like stats and data because these are things I think that'll help people who listen to this podcast and are wanting to do more live events. Uh, you have to carry a, a fairly large amount of inventory if you want to be in the game at the level that you're in the game. Um, and so I think what I haven't broached with any of, of my guests so far who have done this is um, there's a cost to holding that inventory. There's a cost to booking the events. So it's not as if you can book a table at 20 books to 50 K uh, a month before it starts. So you literally have to earmark that money for maybe a year ahead of time. You have to earmark the money in the hard copies that you have. If you would give me your best kind of walkthrough of how you think those processes through, do you use credit and just kind of like roll on credit cards? Like what kind of things do you do? Try to paint the clearest picture you can of that process because you're a pro at it. Step one is if you're going to take any of your publishing business seriously, you need to be set up as a formal business entity because yep. it gives you more flexibility and more freedom. So if you're not already set up as a an LLC or a corporation of some sort, 
do that. It's better than being a sole proprietorship. It's better than being a partnership. You just need to have some sort of corporate company official legal structure in place. Talk to an accountant. They'll advise you on what type of company you should set up as. I'm personally set up as an S corporation, but I know a lot of authors are set up as LLCs and they have benefits and drawbacks to each one. I don't know what they are. Talk to your accountant. (laughs) They will help you. I am not an accountant, so I'm not offering any financial advice. Second, because I'm set up as a business, I can have a business bank account and a business credit card. All of my money that is business related flows through that bank account. And then my business credit card absorbs, I shouldn't say absorbs, I use it to to purchase most of my business expenses. On the rare occasion that they don't accept a credit card or they don't accept an American Express because that's just what it happens to be, then I will pay with either a check or something directly from my bank account. But for most of my transactions, it's going on that business credit card. I'm a big proponent of not being in debt with your business if you can help it. I have spent an exorbitant amount of money on my credit card over the last several years, and it is paid off. I just paid it off again yesterday after the Vegas trip, and my balance is zero again. And that's because I'm very intentional and very careful to not drive myself into debt. There's nothing that can kill your business and ruin your life faster than, well, than debt or some serious actual disaster. But um, it's just a good principle. Don't be in debt if you can help it. Make sure that you have the money to cover whatever it is you're purchasing. Calling all self-published authors. If you live in the United States and you've always wanted to see your books in bookstores, this may be the most important ad you'll hear in 2023. Listen carefully. No matter where you are in your publishing journey, it's not too early to position yourself to pursue brick-and-mortar bookstore distribution. But if you're a self-published author, you've probably heard, getting your books in stores is next to impossible. That's no longer the case. For just $5, you'll receive a lifetime membership to the Self-Published Author Co-op. When you join, you'll have access to a members-only community with a detailed roadmap on how to get your books ready for bookstore distribution. Joining our community does not guarantee bookstore distribution, as there's a limited availability each month to be a featured author. And that's why the cost of a lifetime membership is less than a cup of coffee. Whether you're just about to publish your first book, or you're selling thousands of copies a month, if you don't have your books in bookstores, the Self-Published Author Co-op is the easiest, most efficient way to get national distribution of your books. Click the link in the show notes to join now. Credit cards, I look at them as a tool and as a very, very short-term advance on money that I already have coming in. So it's Mm -hmm. not even really a loan. It's just, hey, I need to pay for this now so I can reserve my spot at this upcoming show. It's going on the credit card. But the show that I'm doing this month is going to pay for the show that I'm doing six months from now. It's going to pay for at least some of the initial fees to reserve my spot. And... When the time comes that I'm actually doing the show, we'll take Gen Con as an example, right? Gen Con is an an enormous show in in downtown Indianapolis. It's a gaming convention. They only let a certain number of authors in. I've been blessed, honored, and privileged to be one of those authors for the last two years. 
and we've done very well at that show. Last year, we did almost exactly $4,000 in sales. This year, we did $5,800, which is part of what contributed to my big month in August that I mentioned at the beginning Mm -hmm. of our here. And so, but I know it's going to cost me $425 just for the table. Right. And that's so that my wife and I can both have a presence there. I could just book it for 375 but then she wouldn't be allowed to put her book there because she's technically a different author. I mean, she is a different uh, author, don't get me wrong, but um, <laughs> yeah. we have to register as a publishing company since I'm the publisher of both her books and mine. Gotcha. So it costs a little bit more. It costs like another 100 bucks or something, mm-hmm. but we're going to make more money by having her books on the table as compared to just having my books. Yeah. So I know that that $425 is coming. And so Mm -hmm. I put it on the credit card knowing that the shows that I'm doing here in December will cover it or, or January or whenever that particular fee is going to come due. But then when I get back to Gen Con this coming August, I'll have in the back of my head, I know I spend 425 or $475 or whatever it is on this table. So I know I need to make at least that much plus cover my hotel plus cover my travel and my food in order for it to be worth my while. The first year, uh, last year in 2022, when we did it, my expenses all together were about two grand, Mm -hmm. not including the cost of the books themselves. The revenue that I brought in from, from Gen Con was four grand. So I, made $2,000. But then, of course, I have to replenish inventory. I have to do all these other things. Mm -hmm. This year, I was more conscientious of it because it was a big show. And so I was able to cut our expenses by roughly 500 bucks. And we also made more money. So it was $5,800 versus, uh, we'll say 15 or 1600 instead of 2000. So I was able to improve my margin by just being a little bit more careful and by having a little bit more information from the first time I did the show, usually you're going to make your mistakes on the front end and that's okay. As long as you correct them on the back end. Yeah. So that's a, sort of a roundabout way of answering. I, I gave some examples and some illustrations there, but just plan for whatever show you're doing to pay for the next one and beyond if you can. Yeah. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk because I started to have a, a, a visual of the process um, as as you're an on-ramp. It's almost like committing to more shows is beneficial to you because suppose like uh, in my case, I was able to sign up for a smaller show that was on November 30th. And so it was only a couple of weeks out. I can easily ride anything that I put on my credit card until that show's over and immediately yeah. pay it back. But as you're going, maybe you're at a show, uh, I go to the same show next year and I have like 12 or 13 shows booked out, then every show that I'm at is going to pay for a show that I I booked at a later time. And then you have your on-ramp and you have to get to a profitability point where eventually all of your shows are paid off and everything is really, you're booking for stuff, but it's already paid. You know that that money's in the bank and it's coming, but getting on that on-ramp can be difficult because it could, it could very well be uh, in, in excess of thousands of dollars. I'm, I'm trying to think of a realistic number, but I mean, again, I'm taking uh, almost a thousand dollars worth of inventory to a show right now. And so if you're taking a thousand dollars worth of inventory, yes, that means that you have roughly three thousand dollars worth of of income potential from that inventory, but it's still money you're sitting on. Absolutely. And um, 
the inventory piece is a really interesting and, and, and silly piece of the thing because you have to account for it and it's a it's a hassle to lug all those books around but if you don't lug all those books around you're not going to sell anything mm -hmm. so it's it's you get the good with the bad right it's just like anything else in life so carrying that inventory has been an interesting thing for me to learn how to manage over the years what i've found just painting in very broad strokes here you're if you're writing in series your book ones are always going to sell the most yeah. The only exception to that is if you have created an omnibus version, uh, let's say you've got all three books in a trilogy and you package them into one giant book and call it the omnibus. This year, my omnibus for my fantasy, my flagship fantasy series, that's my bestseller. Nice. And so I have found myself ordering a bunch of those, uh, both in units and in dollar amount because it's a more expensive product, but also mm -hmm. it's just the book that I've sold the most of. Yeah. I find myself reordering that and then my book ones for, excuse me, for my respective series, those are the ones that you need to carry the most of. And then books two and three and so on of, of, of your series, put them on your table and make sure you have some inventory, but it's far less important. It's far, far yeah. less important to have those. Those are there to make you look like you know what you're doing. They're there yeah. to make your table look really cool because, oh, mm -hmm. you have all these different series finished. That's fantastic. Sometimes people will buy the individuals, but for the most part, the vast majority of the inventory that I bring is there to sell book one and or the omnibus. Interesting. Okay. That's that's a great piece of information. I don't know that I would have even thought to necessarily ask that question. Um, listeners are probably tired of me mentioning David and Lydia Scherer, but I was with them in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Comic Expo. And uh, yeah, they had a similar thing. All of their book ones really, really sold. And then they had a deal where they did books one through four or books one and two. Um, and you got a discounted deal if you were a new new reader buying books one and two. So two for 20 was how they did it. And they they sold so, so many books. But yeah, they she basically said the same thing. Like later in the series, you just don't see the same number of people buying the whole series. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you just really need a lot of book one. Yeah, Absolutely. Do you run with a, a press or do you still do print on demand through Amazon? What uh, Talk to me a little bit about that. I've got a local printer where I live who just happens to do a bunch of printing for companies like Caterpillar and Mercedes and John oh, wow. Deere and a bunch of other large companies. They print the instruction manuals, but they're also perfectly capable of printing books. Oh, cool. Uh, books like fiction, nonfiction, the stuff that you and I and your many of your listeners write. And so I have that connection and I was able to bring them to 20 books Vegas this year. And, uh, they, they remain my source for books because I can awesome. literally drive about after our call. In fact, I'm going to drive over there and pick up an order of books. It takes me about five minutes to get there five minutes wow. to get the books, five minutes to get home. And so you don't have to so, worry about the shipping aspect. Exactly. And not everybody has that advantage, but that helps my margins quite a bit. To Absolutely. not have to pay shipping every time I order books. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's funny because I'll look at, I'm mostly still I'm doing uh, print on demand from, from Amazon because it still is the cheapest. Uh, I did one, one large print run for my book one. Um, and I just had too many books for too long at that case. Um, sure. I think I'll, 
I'm getting close to where I need to do that again, but it, it makes a huge difference right now. It would cost me $5 and change per copy uh, after it's shipped versus if you can go with one of the printers who can do an offset run, you can get your prices down into the $2 range. Um, and that, that is massive. You're talking about doubling your, your profits mm-hmm. at that point. So and it depends on the length of your book. Five mm-hmm. bucks per book is a great price if you write really long books. That's if you're true, writing sure, shorter sure. books, then two bucks a book is a really great price if the book is shorter. And yeah. it all it's it's there's this there's a graph, right? Imagine your L graph uh, with with the X and the Y axis. And the more copies you buy, generally the lower your cost per copy is, but the higher your page count, generally the higher your cost per copy is. So yes, it's, it's going to be different for every book. And I'm not, I would never advocate that you write a shorter book just because it'll be cheaper to print. No, no, no. Write the book, how it's supposed to be written. And then you deal with it when you get there and then you price it accordingly. Generally speaking, uh, I can get a hundred thousand word book printed because I'm printing it locally for in the $6 range, give or take. Um, and that's me. That's my relationship with the printer. That's the price that I get because yeah. I have printed so, so many books with them, but it, it depends on a lot of other factors. I, I also don't have to, don't have to pay shipping for right. any of that. So it, if I had to pay shipping, then it would be a lot more. It would be probably over seven or eight even depending. Yeah, on. Absolutely. So it just, it depends. And if you can find a local printer who can do a good job, great. If you want to use a big, printer you can use big printer that's great too if you're ordering a lot of copies feel free to reach out to me i would be happy to see if i can help you any of your listeners try to get a good deal on purchasing a a a small to large print run of of whatever they need multiple titles however many you want to get if it's like 50 or more copies we can probably work something out very cool. I have a, a good sense that my friend Rich slash sometimes co-host would reach out to you about that. So be uh, on the lookout. I, I almost guarantee sure. already that he'll do that. Um, so in wrapping up, I want to see if you have tips, tricks, or pointers for travel radius and then the thought process behind uh, pricing for these different conferences. Um, yeah, let's keep it broad like that. Tips and tricks for travel. Um, the credit card that I got for my my business account is a business credit card, and it is a Delta American Express card. Oh, nice. I use that because I know I'm flying to Vegas every year, and I know that on occasion I'll have the opportunity to fly other places throughout the course of the year for whatever reason it may be. And so I can rack up my Delta credit card miles and use those to fly for cheaper. If it's a show that I really want to do, but if it's already going to be super expensive, I can save some money that way. And so basically it's, I'm paying myself in the future through these reward miles. So that's number one. Number two is get on some sort of rewards program for booking hotels. You could also get a hotel-based credit card. My friend, Jerry Shepard, who does a lot of shows with me, she has, uh, I think it's a Marriott card, a Marriott Bonvoy. And so she get she just racks up points for hotels because she doesn't do as much flying. I do a little bit more flying, so and I've already had the Delta card for years. So I'm just going to stick with that. But she, she racks up points that way. And so her Gen Con hotel 
was maybe not free, but it was pretty darn cheap because she was able to use points to pay for it. And if you know anything about Gen Con and hotels, they like to jack their prices up nice and high yeah. since they know they have a captive audience and 80,000 people coming into wow. town. But all that to say, if you can get with a, 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 a rewards program like uh, OneKey, which is the com combination of Expedia, Hotels.com, and Verbo, they all kind of just merged. And so now they have a, their OneKey option. You can just rack up dollars toward future stays or future travel wow. through them. I think I have a credit of 680 bucks on there that I'm going to use for something at some point. But um, for now, it's just get something back when and whenever and wherever you can while you're also looking for good deals. Mm. If you're if you're traveling, read reviews on hotels, read, try and look up yeah. the area, see what's around there. I've stayed at some pretty shady places. I've always been fine. That your mileage may vary, right? There's no guarantee of anything in life. So be careful. You and with that said, you could you could end up at a nice hotel and have something happen too. So again, there's no guarantees in life, but if you value your safety and the safety of your inventory and your vehicles and your family, if they're traveling with you, do your dil due dil diligence on the front end and make sure that you are booking the type of location that will be family friendly or friendly to your preferences as the person who's going to be staying there. And yeah. the flip side is, is if you can tolerate being at a lower tier hotel when you're traveling, you're going to, you're going to make more money in the long run just by sacrificing mm -hmm. some of those creature comforts. It's up to you. You get to choose these things. That's the benefit of being self-employed and running your own business and doing things yeah. the way that you want to do them. As far as gas and vehicles and stuff like that, if you have a bigger vehicle, you can bring more inventory. If you have more inventory uh, and more signage, then you can create a more impressive display. The flip side with that is that you then have to set up all of that extra stuff. And there's, I think there's probably a tipping point somewhere where, okay, I've got enough stuff set up. I don't really need to add all these extra frills, but I usually try to do the extra frills anyway, just because I have experienced time and time again, people coming over because, oh, you've got these cute little LED signs that drop drew me over. Oh, your giant banner. It looks so impressive. Oh, your book covers. They look great. Wow. You have so many books. Oh, you're a legend. All these different things. Like I'm, I'm trying to grab people with various different points of interest with my booth and whatever brings them over doesn't really matter what it is. What matters is that it brought them over. Yeah. So keep all these things in mind. If you have a bigger vehicle, you can have more options in some of those regards, but also it'll probably cost you more in terms of the gas to get to and from. You also mentioned radius. I'll speak to that quickly. Everybody's travel radius is going to be different. I know people um, who who drive 12 hours for a show. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. At least I haven't done that yet. I don't really plan on doing that. My radius thus far has been six at the most. Okay. Um, I may venture beyond that this coming year, but for the most part, my radius is, I like it to be five or under, and I really like it to be three or under because time spent in the car is, for me, I don't, it's not wasted time because I can usually listen to some good audio books and yeah. stay up on, that's how, I, that's how I do my reading these days is audio, usually while I'm driving, but I, I try to 
not be in the car as much as possible because I'm not getting anything done. Not really. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's just a consideration that you'll have to take into account. You got to have travel time built in. If you're missing a day of work to go and do this show, and especially if it's a day job, then you have to account for that as well. Are you going to take vacation time? You might have vacation time. Yeah, exactly. Um, or will will your boss give you the day off, but you won't get paid for it? Those are all things that you have to factor in. Is it going to be worth it for you? Yeah. For me, it's it's easy. Like I'm I'm making most of my money at these shows, so yeah, I'll leave on Friday. I'll come back on Sunday night, and we'll hit it hard on Saturday and Sunday, and make some money and go home. If it's a longer show like Gen Con where it starts on Thursday then I have to leave on Wednesday and I don't get back until Sunday or sometimes even Monday. That's a long time to be invested. But if you're pulling in big dollars from a big show, then maybe you can justify it. These are all questions and and things that you need to analyze and consider for yourselves when you're deciding whether or not to do live shows. And the best advice I would give you is that if you haven't done a lot of live shows already, start small. You don't have to start with Gen Con. You don't have to drop $425 on a table. You don't have to drive six hours to go do a show. You can find something, almost almost all of us, at least in the United States, can probably find something local. Bring your books to that, see how you do. Do a few local ones, and then as you find your, your method, the, what works for you as you hit your stride, then start expanding and start doing bigger shows. That's what I've done, and it's worked really well for me so far. Yeah. I love it. I had one idea while you were talking that I'm going to have yeah. to uh, think over, but uh, I was thinking, you know, if you went the VRBO or the Airbnb route, uh, and this would really depend on an author's comfort, but you could actually advertise ahead of time. If you want to have a special meet the author dinner, you could host a dinner at the Airbnb and you most yeah. likely could get enough guests to that dinner to cover the cost of, of your entire stay. Um, if you, if you were able to book fairly close to where you were doing an mm-hmm. event for something bigger like that. So um and then, and then you're the legend, like you're the legend who right. hosts really big, awesome dinners for his readers. So um, I'll have to think about that. There's probably reasons why it won't work, but uh, I love having weird, crazy ideas that I spend That's a lot a of time idea. thinking about. Yeah. Well, and if you can tether some other toward of some other sort of event with mm-hmm. an event you're already going to, maybe a school visit, maybe a yeah. library, maybe a, a local bookstore, if you can find a way to stack some things up if you're already going to be in town and if half the day is done already because you had to drive to get there right maybe you can host some sort of evening event that will bring people in and then you can make a little money that way or cut like you said cut down on your expenses somehow just by doing a little bit more yeah by all means do it that's another area that i'm looking to expand to this coming year is trying to figure out what else can i do while I'm already in town to maximize my time there. Yeah. I've been thinking so much about that right now. That is the biggest thing is how can I stack as much value as I can into a single event so that, you know, cause then you said this earlier, like kids are coming and going from your house. So I, we didn't talk about your family situation, but that's the, that probably is the limiting factor for me. I might live on the road if I were uh, not married with kids, you know? So um, anyways, let's go ahead and wrap up. I know that I already went over time with you. Tell everybody where they can find your books uh, and make sure that we get some people buying some Amazon books from you this, this month. <laughs> well, you can find my books on Amazon. I'm Ben Wolf. Um, most of my stuff is fiction. I do specifically as it pertains to this show. 
I've got two books that would come in handy for authors and aspiring writers alike. I've got Power Author, which is a quick guide to building your story Bible that's geared more toward the craft side of the business. And then I've got Power Author, a quick guide to mastering live events. That's the blue one. You want the blue one if you're looking to learn about live events. That one, it, it's just a dump of a well-organized dump of everything I know about how to do live events, how to do sales, how to source printing, how to source banners and different equipment and stuff that I use, how to find different shows. It's it's a treasure trove of really, really useful information. You can find that on Amazon. You can also buy all of my books in print directly from me. And as of next year, you'll be able to buy them as eBooks as well, directly from my website, which is just benwolf.com. And then for any of you authors out there who are looking to find a better solution for your printing that doesn't have to involve Amazon or some of these other printers out there like Ingram or whoever, just email me directly, ben at benwolf.com. Wolf is spelled like the animal, W-O-L-F. There's no E at the end. Ben at benwolf.com. Happy to talk to you. If we can help you, great. If we can't help you, I'll be able to hopefully refer you on to some other options as well. Awesome. Very cool. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you and meeting you. And uh, hopefully I'll run into you in uh, the Des Moines area at that uh, QuadCon at some point. Yeah, I'll be there uh, next month. There's a show right in the middle of the month. And so, yeah, if you can swing by, we'll, cool. we'll be at Merle Hay Mall. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers, because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening? And now a little bonus material that got cut from the episode, but seemed fun for you diehard fans. It's uh it's been it's been a busy start to the week which is always a, a fine problem to have. If it's a good kind of busy then I could see that. Yeah, that's very true. That some of it's good, some of it's not good. Um recently sure. uh we had our our car's engine go bad um and it was under warranty, so it ended up getting replaced for free, but that was part of the bad busy and the car feels a little bit cursed. I'll definitely write a book about a cursed car someday. <laughs> nice. Yeah. We had a similar thing happen last year, um, a little bit later into December. We we had a Hyundai Santa Fe, and I've been driving it, getting regular oil changes and everything, but apparently the engine liked to chew through the oil pretty quickly. Oh. And despite it being, I mean, I bought the car new, yeah. and we we're it was I, I was the only driver for it. Uh I was on the expressway coming home from jujitsu and suddenly it just started being very sluggish and, and mm-hmm. almost died. Turns oh, out it was in limp mode, which means that you can drive it, but only like up to like 25 miles an hour, which oh, is wow. frightening on the expressway. Fortunately, no it was relatively late at night, so uh, there wasn't a lot of traffic. Took it into the dealership. Long story short, um, they said, yep, your engine shot. Wow. You're in limp mode. Um, so the car is worth about $2,000 on trade-in. It's like, well, crap. Um, oh, my gosh. Should have been worth more than that. But then he came back to us a little bit later and said, actually, turns out 
that you, you guys might be covered under the warranty. We have to check though. We have to see if this exact thing is covered or not. And so uh, Hyundai looked it over and and because it was the Hyundai dealership where I'd bought it. Yeah. And they have a 100,000 mile warranty. We rolled up in there at 99,992 miles. <laughs> wow. And they covered it. Well, that's amazing. So, I mean, good on them. Yeah, they good on them. Good for us. They replaced the engine. And so that we still ended up replacing the vehicle. Okay. Because um, we were kind of in need of a larger vehicle anyway for mm. the various children that rotate in and out of our lives. Um, so we sprang for a Hyundai Palisade, but the trade-in value went from 2000 to 9000 which was substantial. So yeah, absolutely. A nice, a nice jump. Or 2000 to 7000 I don't remember. But it was a Either big... Way, that's great. A big jump. So yeah. we were grateful for that. No kidding. For sure. It, it's... Uh, it, this will this will probably tell you a little bit about the weirdo that I am, but um, I, I was working in uh, sales and and marketing for for a long time and traveled extensively, and so I would oftentimes when I'd get to the airport, I would look for the the Santa Fe's. Uh, I I really yeah. really like that car, and I, I don't even exactly jokingly say it's like my dream car. I don't have one yet, but I would love to get one at one point. Sure. It's so reliable and just like it's very user friendly. The the interior is nice. It always drove really well, handled really well in all weather. I like that car a lot so honda is a good brand 